and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I'm Blaze Bryant wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe 2023. And I'm Bria Barthel, and I double down on Blaze's wishes. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Blair Horner about Governor Hochul's State of the State speech to be presented on Tuesday, January 10th. Then, correspondent Garrett McCary talks with activist Sylvia Rollins about the wind turbine factory proposed for Beacon Island in the Hudson River near the Port of Albany. Later on, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, reports on the December 27th celebration of the second day of Kwanzaa in discussion with Mickey Kahn, co-chair of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition. After that, our very own Sina Bazilla Hickey talks with MLK Saratoga about their upcoming four days of programming. Finally, we have our weekly chat with retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson about our weird winter weather and the atmospheric rivers bringing heavy rain to formerly drought-plagued parts of California and other areas. But first, here are some headlines. East Greenbush is installing stop arm cameras on school buses. There will be cameras set up on the dashboard passenger side and back of the buses, and the cameras are AI-powered or artificial intelligence-powered. These cameras are activated when the red lights are on. They record the license plates of cars who illegally pass. The video is reviewed by law enforcement. A driver could be ticketed if appropriate. The Rensselaer County Legislature is paying for the cameras. They are expected to be installed on all East Greenbush school buses by the end of February, Bria. In other traffic news, a man accused of fatally driving into an Albany woman was not in court on Monday. And CKK Okure is accused of killing 31-year-old Tanisha Brathwaite while she was crossing Clinton Avenue in September. Okure kept going. Police said Okure had too much to drink. He was remanded to the Albany County Jail. There is no word on his next court appearance. A trio of Albany County leaders are gearing up for their re-election campaigns. County Executive Dan McCoy, County Sheriff Craig Apple, and Comptroller Susan Rizzo are launching their campaign or launched their campaigns together. McCoy and Apple are going for their fourth terms, Rizzo her second. And turning to a different aspect of sports, the Siena men's basketball team held their sensory-friendly game at MVP Arena on Sunday. Organizers said a live game can be stimulating. Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara, whose son has autism, said the noise and flashlights can sometimes make sporting events difficult to enjoy. To make the game sensory-friendly, there was artificial noise reduction and no flashing videos. Oh, by the way, Sienna beat Ryder, 68-63. And that's it for the headlines. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers, so you can participate in creating it. To learn how you can contribute time and talent, 
Go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. On Tuesday, January 10th, Governor Kathy Hochul will deliver her State of the State address here in 2023 to New York State, or I'm sorry, to the New York State Legislature. In this segment, frequent correspondent Mark Dunley talks with Blair Horner of the New York Public Research Interest Group, or NYPIRG, about some of the likely topics, including housing, health care, and the climate. On January 10th, Governor Hochul delivers the annual State of the State address, where she lays out her priorities for the upcoming year. Generally, the State of the State is considered where you announce the good news, and then some of the tougher news comes with the budget a few uh, weeks later. But it definitely sets the overview for the uh, session. So we're joined by uh, Blair Horner uh, of the New York Public Interest Research Group, a longtime uh, advocate at the State Capitol. Blair, what are some of the expectations, perhaps, uh, for what uh, Governor Hochul will be addressing in this year's State of the State? Well, you, uh, you sort of set it up right, Mark, in the sense that the State of the State is um, more uh, a self-congratulatory uh, speech than anything else. I mean, typically, the um, the number of years a governor is governor, the longer list of how happy they are with their performance goes in the speech. And so the speech typically has sort of component parts. One is thanking the legislature for being so great about all these wonderful victories that they want to cover. Uh, there's usually then some sort of section that covers, uh, you know, items that will have some regional appeal to help the local regional media uh, cover the event. And then the vision part of it, which is where they want to go. It's very rare that bad news shows up in the state of the state address. The only time that those really happen is if the new is a newly elected governor following a governor of the other political party. So I think, you know, some of the stuff the governor's already telegraphed, she's talked a lot about the need for additional housing. She's talked about somewhere in the neighborhood of 100, 800,000 uh, housing units that she'd like to see happen. I expect that there'll be something on that. I'll expect that there'll be something on uh, public safety, um, how she she's going to want to tackle that. I don't know, but uh, she, you know, the Democrats took their lumps on the issue in the November elections on that. And so they she may feel compelled to do something about that. Um, I think there'll be a, a section on climate change, largely following up on the uh, report issued by the Climate Action Council last month. What she'll choose to talk about, my guess, will be on the more on the um, uh, visionary, vague <laughs> environmental goals of the state and not really get into the details, as you referenced earlier, the details usually follow in the budget. So I think it'll be uh, those are the types of things and that she will avoid uh, you know, the elephant in the room, which is, you know, how do you pay for programs and the state's looming uh, financial uh, problems that are expected in the next few years? Now, even though uh, Governor Hochul is the incumbent, obviously she replaced um, Governor Cuomo after he resigned. So this is, you know, she went to an election where she had to, you know, get reelected, um, did not do as well as she anticipated or anybody else anticipated, only won a little bit more than 5% of the vote. So you assume that may make her a little bit more cautious, and we may also see a little bit more of her 
actual policies emerging now that she doesn't have to face a re-election. You, you know, what are some of your priorities being for, from, from NYPERG that uh, you mentioned the environment, but you obviously do a lot of work on consumer and uh, education issues. You know, what are the things that NYPERG would be looking for going forth this year? Well, you know, there's uh, there are things that we would like to see in the state of the state address and we would like to see embraced by the government and the legislature. But, of course, we have no idea if they will. Uh, you're right. We have a number of issues in the area and environment, particularly the area of climate change, uh, where we have issues dealing with um, trying to make the oil companies pick up the tab for climate damages uh, to move the state toward a speedier program of requiring new building construction to, to use electric power instead of gas power to uh, heat the buildings, um, to deal with solid waste issues, to have a really good extended producer responsibility program and an expansion of the 40-year-old this year uh, bottle deposit law. There's a big issue in the area of higher education, which is really financial, uh, and that is that so many of the colleges, both public and private, are teetering on the financial brink because of years of state disinvestment um, the Casanova College, for example, just uh, mentioned, I think it was about a month or so ago, announced that they're closing their doors because they can't make it. And uh, there are public colleges that are in bad shape, too, financially. So I, I, we're sort of hoping that the governor will use this um, state of the state, but certainly our budget is an opportunity to sort of uh, help restore those, because not only are those colleges important for future generations of citizens and employees, uh, but there are also little mini economic engines for their regions. And if they go, they have to close up, it has a severe adverse impact. So those are some, uh, in, certainly in the area of healthcare, we'll be looking at ways to uh, sort of deal with that. I mean, in, you know, people that don't have access to health insurance or inadequate health insurance. And in the area of democracy, we're going to be looking for ways to uh, help uh, the state do a better job of getting voter participation. Even all of the changes that have happened so far, New York was still below the national average in terms of voter participation. The state will have a voluntary system of public financing that's gone starting already. The state has to fund it. So there's a number of issues all across the board uh, that we'll be looking at and hoping that the governor embraces, or uh, if not, that the legislature forces uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, I, I had wanted to talk to you about the issue of public campaign financing or partial public campaign financing. So it's an issue that Nyberg has worked on for many years. And as you said, it is going to start this year. Um, Hochul really developed a reputation of being a pretty aggressive fundraiser. It was pretty blunt with some of the lobbyists. You know, you want me to show up at a fundraiser, you know, guarantee me $100,000 and I'm there, which seems to be a pretty... Uh, you know, pay to play uh, type of approach. So do you want to quickly maybe outline what this uh, partial public campaign financing is going to be? And, and what are some of the, you know, unleft business that needs to happen to reduce the influence of special interest money at the Capitol? Well, uh, let me work in reverse order. Thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court, it's hard to do anything about the wealthy and powerful having influence over political policy and economic decisions in the country. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court has basically argued, and I can't find it in the Constitution anywhere, but that the uh, your uh, right to petition the government and to speak your mind uh, can be measured in how wealthy you are. Uh, so that somehow that having money 
and spending it to influence elections uh, and policymaking is a, is a protected speech under the U.S. Constitution. So it's hard, uh, but you're right that the governor was um, very aggressive in terms of getting the lobbying corps and those with business before the government to fork over the campaign contributions so that she was able to raise a lot of money in record time. And she still almost lost because her opponent uh, was blessed uh, with independent uh, campaigns that supposedly ran without coordination with his uh, that spent mil tens of millions of dollars to help him. It's a terrible system. Uh, so the, the voluntary system of public financing, they didn't just take, New York City has had a program in place now for 40 years. And what lawmakers did in Albany is they didn't just expand the program that they know how it works. They sort of dreamt up a new one on their own. So we'll see how it figure, works out. The uh, idea for this system really comes from uh, a proposal advanced by uh, Democratic State Democratic Party Chair Jay Jacobs. We'll see how it all works out. But it's basically a system where the smaller the amount that you donate, the larger the public match. So if you give up to 50 bucks, for example, it gets every dollar gets matched with $12. And as it goes up in the size of donation up to about $250, there's a match, but the match goes down. But and that should help in challengers to have access to money uh, and able to run for office. But it doesn't necessarily do much about um a governor who wants to use the powers of incumbency to raise money or somebody who wants to use wealthy billionaires outside of the political pro outside of government to fund their effort in an independent fashion. Now, no, we so only have a min minute left. I'm going to ask you a question that's impossible to answer in a minute. But you mentioned the climate, you get this new new plan proposal. You got two new chairs of the Assembly and Senate Environmental Committee. What are Quickly, what are going to be some of the flashpoints on the environment in 45 seconds? I think the big issue is going to be who pays for the, the various programs. The state is going to be facing costs of tens of billions of dollars, easily $100 billion in spending over the next decade to deal with the damages caused by the climate. Who's going to pay for it? Tax, the New York taxpayers or someone else? We think it should be the oil companies. Okay. If people want more information about Nyberg website, Nyperg.org. We've been talking to Blair Horner, uh, Executive Director of Nyperg, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Governor Hochul's State of the State Address is scheduled to start at 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Listen to see if, if Mark Dunley and Blair Horner previewed the right topics. Well, I can tell you, working in communications for a statewide association. Those are definitely some of the topics for sure. To spell out the New York Public Research Interest Group's uh, website, it is nypirg.org. Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Garrett McCurry speaks with Sylvia Rollins about the proposed wind turbine, wind turbine factory on Beacon Island which is an island in the Hudson River near the Port of Albany that is composed of toxic coal ash. You may have heard about the Port of Albany's plan to build a wind turbine factory on Beacon Island, just south of Albany. Well, wind power is great, and we certainly need to look for alternatives to fossil fuels, but there are a number of red flags about this particular project. 
First, the port was given a waiver to build in the 100-foot buffer zone surrounding the tidal portion of the Normanskill. Then, they clear-cut 80 acres without a proper permit. They are filling in wetlands and dredging the Hudson River. But that's not all. They are building it on an island made of toxic coal ash. I'm here with Sylvia Rowland, who is a neighbor of the Beacon Island Project, living a mere 1,400 feet from the project. And uh, thank you for speaking with us, Sylvia. Well, thank you for asking me to speak. So uh, tell me about the coal ash issue on Beacon Island. Um, so uh, we, we bought our house just a little over two years ago and had no idea that there was plus or minus two million tons of coal ash deposited on the island between the years of 1950 and 1970 or 1974 or 1976, depending on what report you're, you're looking at. Um, and when the port um, clear-cut Beacon Island with a, with a letter of limited uh, permission from the DEC, it was clear to see that there wasn't dirt down there. There was some, something sitting on top of the dirt. And that's when we first discovered that it the, we first discovered the coal ash deposition and then dug into it to see what is coal ash, what are the dangers of coal ash, how much is there, um, are there any records around um, coal ash being there. So what is coal ash? Uh, so very, very good question. So coal ash is sort of a summary term for uh, the byproduct of um, burning coal. So it is fly ash, which is the uh, light ashy sort of uh, material that's that's that is a result of burning coal. There's also bottom sledge, which is this thicker, heavier um, material that's left behind. There's also the debris that goes up the chimney or up the smokestack, and they use a lime um, sort of uh, cleaning approach to bring that out of the out of the um, smokestacks to keep it from. Um, being deposited essentially into the air. And so all of those things together make up what we call coal ash, what the federal government calls carbon um, combustion re residuals. And why is it there? Um, so in, in 1950, plus or minus 1950, the um, Albany steam plant burned coal to produce energy for the area. And um, they brought in, we, we have some, there's, there's at least one individual who actually delivered coal um, to the plant that said he delivered over an eight-month period of time while he worked at, uh, with the CSX trains, he delivered 33,000 tons a week. So they burned a lot of coal and produced quite a bit of coal ash. About 12% of the residual of burning um, coal is coal ash or all of the composite materials that make up coal ash. Um, so it was used to create energy and amazing history. Um, there were five islands there in, before 1950. And before the coal ash was dumped there, dredging from the Hudson River was dumped in the channels around the islands. There were petroleum wastes dumped there. Um, and then for two and a half decades, there were, uh, was coal ash dumped there. And it was there was no place else to dump it. It's a hot product. So they dumped it in the channels around the islands. So this was uh, before the Environmental Protection Agency but there had been some something about classifying coal ash as something. Yep, yep. Yeah, and so through the 50s and 60s and 70s, I think it would be fair to say that they knew that it was potentially a dangerous product, um, but there was no label for it. There was no scientific research behind it. 
Um, but in 2008, in Kingston, Tennessee, there was a failure of a surface impound. It's a pond that that uh, coal company or coal burning plants use now to dump all the coal ash in to to contain it to keep the fly ash from from being free to fly. There was a break in their dam, and the materials in this in this um, surface impound, it's called a slurry. The slurry spread for hundreds of feet up to up to a couple of miles and just covered the area with billions of tons of debris. And so what happened after that is they called a crew in to clean it up. The crew had on full fallout gear and in masks and respirators, um, and it, it took several years to clean up, and I think it's probably still, I think we could argue that it's still not cleaned, but they came back years later having um, illnesses relative to, to ingestion of toxic material. And so the DEC, took a hard look then at what coal ash was and the dangers of coal ash and discovered um, that there are these heavy metals that when the coal ash um, interacts with water, the heavy metals dissolve out and then become subatomic particles that are free in the water, free in the air. Um, and the most dangerous one, I think everyone would agree, is arsenic. Um, it tends to be the main ingredient of toxic, the toxic metals associated with coal ash, and it's, um, it's found actually in all of the water testing, groundwater testing um, on Beacon Island, arsenic was found above state and federal requirements, as were other. Uh, there was uh, mercury, zinc, cobalt, lead, <laughs> boron, lots of chemicals were found um, as to have contaminated the waters. So the groundwater, the water table on Beacon Island is at the surface. So the coal ash is constantly mixing with groundwater and creating literally that toxic um, soup. Well, why has the DEC allowed this project to get this far? New York State doesn't recognize coal ash as a hazardous material. And that relates back to the 2008 spill. Through that investigation period, the Environmental Protection Agency in 2015 advanced legislation that its intent was to identify coal ash as hazardous material. Coal companies were so powerful at the time that negotiations had to be made. And the EPA, from what I understand from the lawsuit that is currently being brought about the brought against the EPA, and we can talk about that in a second, that the pressure was so great that the negotiations, the EPA lost some of its enforcement um, power and um, the hazardous waste label um, was negotiated out. What is the Port of Albany proposing to do about this coal ash issue? What they have proposed in their soil management plan is to implement um, strategies that were used in 1970. And they can do that because New York State has not adopted the 2015 EPA CCR, the, the uh, Coal Combustion Residual uh, legislation. So they're proposing to use a 1970s strategy for capping in place, which involves two feet of soil on top of the, of the coal ash. And the DEC is supporting that. They sent a they made a communication with the port saying they would be willing to accept a 1970 strategy. And the interesting thing about 1970 strategy is it didn't solve the problem in 1970, nor did it solve the problem in 1980. Yet has to solve the problem today. So, um, yeah. So it's so it's an interesting offer. 
Uh, so Sylvia, what, what what do you propose as a, a solution to this problem? So what we what the the advocacy group has said all along is right project wrong place. The issue with coal ash is that um, the the presence of the groundwater in Bacon Island does not suit a um, a cap in place. Um, and as a matter of fact, the 2015 C CRA rules will not allow a cap in place when groundwater is contaminated. We know that the groundwater is contaminated because um, Atlantic Testing Laboratories, Inc. Did, did soil and water tests in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021, and every time they tested, the water was contaminated. What the about hazardous solid waste and talk about how to contain this, to bring in coal ash experts and talk about containment. I, the, the, there's pros and cons with removal of coal ash. Personally, the biggest problem with, with the removal is that it takes the problem someplace else and it becomes someone else's problem, right? So there may be a landfill if you pay them enough money that would take it, but the people around the landfill would not it would not be a safe situation for them. So bring smart people together and talk about it. And there does seem to be some evidence, although nothing is 100% effective, that an entire encapsulation um, is the best thing you can do because you put a you put a cap on top and they're going to put on top of the cap, they're going to put tons of fill um, because they have to raise the level of the building above the highest high level of the flood. 100-year flood level, so um, you still have exposed below that the stratigraphy of the Hudson River, or the bank of the Hudson River, is going to allow the beautiful estuary, the beautiful tidal flow, or the, the beautiful scrubbing that's going to happen is going to bring water in and out underneath to where the, the coal and the water are in contact. So it's not a safe answer. Um, it will slowly and, and into perpetuity run toxins into the Hudson River, into the groundwater, and eventually into wells and et cetera. It's done that in hundreds of places in the United States. Not sure why Beacon Island would be any different. So if people wanted to learn more about this issue, uh, how would they get in touch with you? We have a Twitter site at Beacon underscore Justice. Um, we have a website that is um, Beacon Island Environmental Justice. Um, and I would welcome people to email me at sylviarollins54 at outlook.com. Thanks to Garrett McCary and Sylvia Rollins, R-O-W-L-A-N-D-S, for that look at many concerns regarding the proposed wind turbine project near the Port of Albany. Hudson Mohawk Magazine will continue to follow this story in later broadcasts. Indeed we will, Bria. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Here on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, I'm Blaze Bryant. The stations you are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, our WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, by contributing, or by volunteering.
You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now on to our next story. Where we get to take a little break from politics. Our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, attended the December 27th celebration of the second day of Kwanzaa at the Oakwood Community Center in Troy. He brings us his interview with Mickey Kahn, a co-chair of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition. Yo, this is uh, Willie Terry, a Roman labor correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk uh, magazine. And I'm here today at the Oakwood Community Center in Troy where they're having a Kwanzaa. I have as my guest, and, and, and I'm a special guest, and this is one of the originators of the Kwanzaa program com- coming into the Capital Region. And I think she's a member of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition, right? Yes. All right. And her name is Mickey Khan. How you doing, Mickey? Hi. Doing fine. Thank you for asking me to interview. Right. Yeah. So, Mickey, just give me a little history of how things got started and how you got involved. Well, Kwanzaa itself got started in the 60s after the 1966 riots, uh, Watts riots, rebellions, as some people call it. Um, People began to realize that we needed to do things in a different way. We needed to look at our values, at what kind of lives we as an African-American community wanted to live. What, what did we want to pass out, pass on to our children? And so Milana Karanga, professor at UCLA, um, invented, put together a Kwanzaa celebration. Now that is very unique and unusual in and of itself because most of the celebrations have come about through religious figures or events, things like that. Um, But this one, it's in our lifetime. We know who invented it, who put it together, and it caught on like water on a thirsty plain. It was really, it really struck a chord in so many people and eventually made its way as a celebration to the East Coast and um, it was in the late 60s that the Kwanzaa celebration began to occur in the capital region. The Hamilton Hill Art Center, which at the time was under the directorship of my mother, Margaret Cunningham, they were the first to introduce the Kwanzaa celebration to the area. And it caught on. It went on for many years as a one-day celebration, even though it was designed as a seven-day celebration. And some years ago, I don't know the exact year, but Aaron Carter and I got to talking, and Aaron had a vision of seven days of Kwanzaa, which is what it was. Aaron Carter is a community activist an organizer from the Albany region. Right. I think he did Ujima. Yes, yes, he's the director of Ujima Journeys. And so together we began to think about how we could do Kwanzaa as a seven-day 
occasion, and we formed the Kwanzaa Coalition, which is a group of organizations, each of which will take a night of the seven nights, as the um, organization here has done. They've taken a night, and they're putting on a Kwanzaa celebration, and the Kwanzaa Coalition supports them, helps them, makes sure they have and know knows everything they need. Are you doing um, uh, Schenectady? Albany, Albany and, and Troy. Troy. That's right. And later, so, I mean, you probably want to we probably will spread out more. That's right. That's right. So uh, one of the things that I didn't mention is that it is a seven-day seven celebration based on the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Uh, we use Swahili words, the language Swahili, which is an African trade language, and we use that to show that we can all communicate with each other and also to honor our roots as Africans, as African Americans. So the seven principles of Kwanzaa is called the Nguzo Saba in Swahili, and each day of Kwanzaa stands for a separate principle. Tonight is the second night of Kwanzaa, and the principle is Kujichagulia, or self-determination. Last night was the first night of Kwanzaa. The principle was Umoja, or unity. And we will go on as the week what, what continues. Do you think, uh, why do you think Kwanzaa caught fire? Do you think that's a desire for African people to really know their history? And what, what, or what? Well, we had, as, as African people, have been portrayed in many hostile, disrespectful ways. And people who didn't even know us, who didn't even know our history, had negative thoughts about us. And I, I imagine that you could talk to any African-American and you would hear a story of uh, what had happened where they had been misjudged um, because of the negative assumptions that children have been taught from an early age. Um, these assumptions, unfortunately, not only affected those who disrespected African Americans, it also affected our own people, so that you found children who felt that they were less than, who heard the message, who would choose a white doll over a black doll, and so on. So I think what happened is that people began to see that Kwanzaa celebrates in a positive way who we are and who we can be and what our potential is for the future and what our past history was that we were not that our history is not just slavery that we had kings and queens and philosophers and you know inventors and all kinds of people worthy of respect and I think that's that's one aspect another aspect is having a celebration 
that is for African Americans, and it is a. <clears throat> If we, we call each other brothers and sisters, now we want to act like brothers and sisters and get together at least annually and celebrate our relationships with each other and what those relationships can be. So that's another reason that Kwanzaa caught on. It was a time when this positivity was definitely needed. Now, how, how do you keep this you know, 365 days, how do you keep this going? Because the scene that it kind of just come around, around this time, and then you don't hear no more. It's true. And once a year is a beginning. It's not, it's our goal to learn the principles and base our lives and our interactions on those principles. And we help each other within the Ponza Coalition. We help each other and support each other in doing that. And gradually, I think people will come to see that if it's valuable once a year, it's valuable all year round. Okay. Nikki, uh, I want to say that my time ran out, but uh, yeah. I, I have a lot of questions that I'm going to ask you, and I'm sure of me you got to come, come back together and, and, get, and talk about this more. And, answer some of the other And I want to thank you, uh, okay? And that's Mickey Khan, who's a member of the Capital Region Kwanzaa Coalition. Thank you. Thanks to roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, and his guest, Mickey Khan, for that background on Kwanzaa. Now on to another aspect of African-American history, or rather just American history, Blaze. Indeed, Bria. Next Monday, January 16th, is Martin Luther King Day. Programming note, we will have special programming on MLK Day here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. MLK Saratoga started about 30 years ago, offering annual events honoring Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. Our very own Sina Bazila Hickey, who is producing and engineering this episode, brings us this interview with one of the group's co-founders, Dora Lee Stanley, about the group and its upcoming events. So this coming Monday on January 16th is Martin Luther King Day. And joining me now is Doralee Stanley from MLK Saratoga. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. And yes, Monday is Dr. King's holiday. Um, what does that mean to you? Well, Dr. King was always a hero of mine. And he has been my passion, and I like to help continue his vision of the beloved community where all people share in the earth's bounty and people work to combat poverty, hatred, hunger, homelessness through his principles of nonviolence. And you mentioned community and, and the MLK Saratoga events really span days and bring together wonderful network of people from many different areas in this region. And 
Was it always, was MLK Saratoga always this extensive, this many days? Can you talk a little bit about how it all began? Okay. So I am a founding member of the MLK Saratoga. It started out, I'd say, 30 years ago when we met as a group of various community organizations and uh, we had a one day event and the purpose was to celebrate Dr. King's legacy. And then we continued throughout many years and then around 2014, we started another group combined with more uh, community involvement. And we started promoting projects throughout the year. And um, it became a four-day celebration. And that's where we are now. We start on Friday and end on Monday. What are the most important aspects in celebrating and remembering MLK's legacy? Well, Dr. King had six principles of involving his legacy, and we try to keep with those six principles. With that, we have promoted diversity, equity, inclusivity, you know, anti-racism and social justice throughout the year, particularly on the weekend of his birthday celebration. And we do this through dialogue, conversation, arts, and performance. And that's what we have been promoting under the MLK Saratoga, which is a 5013C organization. Is there any part of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King's legacy that is sometimes overlooked or maybe not emphasized enough that is a really important part of who he is, was? Well, you know, I think the when you, you talk about Dr. King and you think in terms of, oh, he was all about nonviolence. And then you think, well, in this day and age, we have so many things going on that actually don't coincide sometimes with what he's about. But we continue to promote his six principles and we keep trying throughout the year with our projects. So we believe in taking action, doing things that actually promote all of his ideas. He's sort of our guiding light and we hope that vision encompasses our community in Saratoga County. Wonderful. We're about at the halfway mark, so let's now dive into these events. I'm looking at the mlksaratoga.org on the website, and there is a long list of events. So let's start with Friday. What's what's going to take oh, place on the goodness. January so, 13th? 
Yeah, so we we kick off, we say it's our eighth Dr. King challenge, but we kick off our celebration with poets. We have members of the art community. And this year, we're going to have John Bruchak, who's going to kick off with fun. And we're just going to have a photo booth. We're going to have light fair. And a reminder, all of our events are free. We do projects throughout the year and fundraising, and some of our sponsors dedicate their sponsorship to make our events free so that we're not barring anyone from joining in on all of these events. So it starts out Friday, and and, and, and there's so many highlights, but DJ Hollywood 8 is going to uh, do a performance. And then after that, we start with Saturday. We start at 1030 with How the Negro Got His Song. And one of the things I always want to tell people when I talk about uh, our Martin Luther King weekend, it's always something new that I haven't heard of this individual or understand what this project is about. And it's a learning opportunity. So Saturday, we're going to have a restorative uh, justice in schools. And uh, that's a presentation from the uh, South Glens Falls School District and their school-based restorative justice practices will be uh, featured at 1230. And then we have the urban renewal in Saratoga with CREATE the Community Arts Studio unveiling a multimedia exhibition about some of the places that no longer exist. We call it urban removal, and it impacts a lot of people who were of color and their homes were no longer available because they did a whole urban renewal and that will be discussed. And then we have a program the greatest love of all, which we're partnering this year with SPAC. And that is the roots and revolution of Black women in pop. And we have a Yado artist, Danielle Smith, and she is the author of Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black women in pop. And she's going to be over Zoom. She's coming from California, but she will be there to talk to us. And then we have a Dr. Emmanuel B-A-L-O-G-U-N and Dr. Tammy Owens, who will do special performances and talk to us. And uh, Dee Collin, who is a poet and an artist. And that will be at the Pines at SPAC. Wonderful. And all of this is also on the website, if we're going too quickly. All at the website, mlksaratoga.org. So Sunday, we have Nakara Warrant Trio. And that you have to uh, register with. And it's an interview with her. And at 3 o'clock, it's a children's program. And we end our program 2 o'clock with songs and soul of the movement at the 
Saratoga Springs United Methodist Church, where we will feature Garland Nelson, who will take us and end our weekend with a bang. Well, this is fantastic. And it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Dorley. I do hope that we'll have you again. The legacy of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King is relevant every day of the year. So I hope to talk to you again some later time this year. Thank you. That was our own Cena Bazilla Hickey talking with Dora Lee Stanley about the four days of great upcoming events next weekend, sponsored by MLK Saratoga. Thank you, Bria. It is that time of the Monday evening or Tuesday morning, whenever you're listening, where we bring in our resident weather expert, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson, as we talk about weather and climate. Hey, Hugh. Well, uh, there's we actually have... a short tie-up on getting Hugh on the line. So okay. I can talk a little bit about climate because I was in Buffalo for nine days for a planned six-day visit. With the 51 inches of snow, the 59-mile-per-hour winds, the, I think, seven days of not being able to get out of our house in any way, shape, or form, the three days of zero visibility, it was quite the event. I could only imagine, and I know you, uh, Bria, said that uh, as we're buying time here, waiting for Hugh Johnson to join us. Um, He's on the phone now, I understand. He's on the line. I'm, I'm right here. I'm right here. Okay, we've got you now. Okay. Uh, hey, Hugh, Happy New Year. Blaze Brian, Bria Barthel here for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Great to have you back aboard with us. So as we were buying a little technical time, one of the things you told us in a pre-show email was Rochester, which is about 40 miles south of Buffalo or south um, east of Buffalo, I more should east, say. More yeah, is, east, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, southeast. I I wanted geography to be in fifth grade, and that's as good as it got. So how did they, meaning Rochester, how have they hardly gotten anything and Buffalo's been pounded? Well, that's, that's a great question, um, and I was shocked to even see that big a difference disparity, too. But it's all about lake effect. 90% or I'd say 80% of the snow that's fallen in Buffalo so far has been lake effect. And uh, they had the two huge events, the one in November, and then, of course, the horrible blizzard at the end uh, around Christmas. And both of those, apparently, and they did miss Rochester. Rochester only got four and a half inches of snow in December. They got less than we did. They missed the synoptic storm. So it's, it really is about how the wind blows. And in this case, it, it just missed Rochester because they normally get, a you know, they get over 80 inches of snow. So they're way behind, whereas the buffalo is ahead and they're going to be ahead for the winter. Yeah, Buffalo grabbed it all. I was there, I know. So the other place getting weird impacts is California with an atmospheric river bringing great flooding there. What's going on there? Yes, indeed, uh, Rhea. We had, um, it's all about the jet stream, the position of the jet stream, a very strong jet across the Pacific. And basically look at it, it's almost like a hose. It's it's affecting moisture from the subtropics and the tropics even, and it brings a lot of moisture from the ocean and it combined into embedded into these strong storms as they work across the Pacific. The, quickly, just a quick outlay, the polar vortex is lifted north. That's why it's been 
<clears throat> pretty mild here, not only here, but most of the country. But this strong jet <clears throat> has been allowed to be inhibited and, and slamming moisture into the uh, California coastline. They need the rain, but not this quickly. They do not need it this quickly. And uh, you could argue that climate change is sort of plays a role in that. You talked about this extremes. We go from one extreme to another. It's usually been dry in California, but every now and then we get this break where it's suddenly very wet. And it's, it sounds like good news, and it is, but keep in mind, this is going to allow more vegetation to flourish, which if we get dry again, could add more fuel for fires later on in the year. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but I see that as a possibility. For sure. Well, will that atmospheric river continue? Will, will, is California in for a lot more rain now? They are, they are, that's a good question. Yes, they are in for more rain for the next week or so. It might settle down for that. Might the, the, the jet stream might suddenly shift a little more northwesterly, which would cut off the the, uh, the flow from the tropics. But for the next week, yeah. In fact, there's a storm that's about to hit them now that will probably impact us later in the week. Hi, Hugh Johnson with me, Blaze Bryant, and Bria Barthel here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine as we do our weekly weather musings. Let's talk about this winter. It is roughly 10 degrees warmer. I heard a report on Channel 13 a little bit before we started the show here. There was a reporter at West Mountain talking about the very difficult realities of making snow with temperatures this warm. And we have bare grounds What's going on? Well, again, we, we're lacking any Arctic air. The, the polar vortex is locked up in the high in the latitudes now, and that's where all the really cold air is. That said, it has gotten marginally cold enough to make snow. I mean, we're going to be in the 20s tonight, especially in the mountain areas uh, so in the next couple of nights. So we, they will be able to make snow once they get below freezing, especially with the dew point also dropping into the 20s. They can make snow, but it's not the same. It definitely isn't. And the bad news is it looks like we could warm up a little bit and get wet again later in the week, which would, would kind of mess up the snow again. So no, no great uh, promising, uh, no promises of any great relief from this uh, for them. And also the ice sculptures in Lake George, Lake George is completely open now. There's no ice at all. So it's going to be hard to have a, a carnival on Lake George unless they freeze, which they don't look like they're going to do anytime soon. I mean, there is something cool to be said about a floating carnival, if we're going to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyhow, um, back to you know the, the climate here, as we've got just a few minutes left here, Hugh. In terms of climate change, where are we with CO2 emission levels from where we were five years ago? Well, we're probably about the same or a little higher. Um, it might be a good um, discussion for next week because we are running out of time. But there is, it's complicated, but there, it's not, you know, we, we can talk about some of the pros and cons and things that are being done to help uh, reverse that CO2 level and what I think the, the outcome is going to be. But let's save that for next week. But for now, I will say that for the next week, uh, it's going to be pretty quiet, like from here till Thursday. We might get a few flurries for the few minor systems, but otherwise quiet temperatures still running a little bit above normal, not as much as they have been. Uh, and then at well, the end of the week, we probably warm up a little bit more as that big California storm moves in. And that could end up being a couple of days of precipitation for our area. And all bets look like it's going to start out mostly as rain. 
or it might start very briefly as snow, but go mainly to rain. But there might be a secondary storm on Saturday. We have to watch when it comes up the coast. That may change to wet snow. It may be just cold enough, but it's still five days out. There's still lots to change, but at least something if you're a snow lover to look forward to. But it's not going to get really cold anytime soon. There's no real Arctic air coming behind that. So pretty quiet at the beginning of the week and then unsettled as we get into the weekend, looks like. And we'll talk about the CO2 next week because I think that's a very good topic to uh, to talk about for you know our 10-minute segment next week. And Does that sound good for you? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll revisit this on the 23rd because of MLK week, Day, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King Day, and yeah. the special programming. Yep. So. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so it makes yeah. it twice as good of a tease. There you go. And, uh, but for the you meantime, I, I mean, are we, oh, go, go for it. Yep. Yep. I have a quick question for you. I was looking at weather forecasts on TV and it showed an area of clouds and possible rain or snow completely surrounding Albany, but right at Albany, this circle where there wasn't anything. How does it get so specific like that? Because there's two systems, uh, Bree. There's one going to our south, and when that slipped by to our south, and there's a little clipper that's going to bring some light snow or flurries across the northern areas, and we'll be in between those. So that you know, just the luck of the draw and the track of the storms, we're going to miss both of those storms. So, and and we'll get some clouds. That's all we which we had plenty of today. We're back. We had a nice sunny day yesterday. That was refreshing. But back to the clouds today. Hopefully, a little more sun tomorrow. And uh, and again on Wednesday, and then it'll probably get cloudier as we get towards the end of the week, obviously, with that storm coming. So that's what's happening there, though. We just happened to miss those two systems. They were both pretty weak, though. Okay, thanks. I was curious about that. Great talking with great. you again, and I look forward to talking with you in a couple weeks. You got it. Have a great time. Take care, uh, everyone. Thank you, Hugh. You as well. That does it. For this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine, thank you so much for listening. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the incredible Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Other contributors to today's episode include, include Mark Dunley, Garrett McCary, and Willie Terry. You're welcome to join us as a volunteer. No experience necessary. We train and support each other in a friendly community. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. We if want value. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Bria. Go ahead. Well, I'll just finish it out to get involved. MediaSanctuary.org. And we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Send us an email hmm at mediasanctuary.org give us a call 518-272-2390 tune in weekdays at 7 a.m 9 a.m and 6 p.m to hear local news or stream sanctuary radio again at mediasanctuary.org where you can find full episodes and stream individual stories and because i stepped on you bria you get the last word so we appreciate you listening. Hudson Mohawk Magazine continues each weekday, but as noted, next Monday, we'll run a program of Martin Luther King's speeches. Blaze, Hugh, and I will return on Monday the 23rd. So have a great couple of weeks and listen to our other programs. Good night. Oh, sorry. Good talking with you.
Uncle Dave. 